2: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
3: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, February 1st. The Binky Barter Edition. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 16, Teddy, who is 15, and a stepdaughter, Lily, who is 17.
2: And I'm Carvel Wallace, a journalist and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 12, and Ezra, who is 14.
1: And I'm Catherine Goldstein.
3: I'm a journalist who covers women and work, and I am the mom to Asher,
1: who is two and a half. And Catherine is a hero because she showed up for Gabe, who is feeling under the weather this week. And we'll also be hearing from Catherine in our Slate Plus edition. I'm glad you're here, actually, because you will follow up with us on that religious slash family vacation dilemma you told us about a few weeks ago today we'll also be taking listener questions from a mother of three facing a really challenging personal situation and we'll hear from a mom whose kid just isn't into reading all that plus recommendations triumphs and fails so let's get to it carvel do you have a triumph or a fail this week
2: Oh man, I have so many things that are triumphs and fails, and I was torn about what to talk about, but I'm gonna talk about something that's a little serious, which is that listeners to the show know that um there have been many a triumph slash fail involving my oldest, the great Ezra Wallace, who um as a side note, did complete his run of Danny in the Deep Blue Sea and was absolutely amazing. Like it was awesome. stunning. His performance that's great was mind-blowing and um and he did memorize his lines and uh he i mean it just you know it was like it was fantastic the downside of that is that he um (laughs) his academics fell into the actual toilet over the course of this semester because the rehearsal schedule was so intense and he um has historically exhibited uh let's just say an inability to manage multiple things successfully. So he ended up having just like a complete academic failure to the point where he actually lost eligibility to perform in the next semester because he fell below the requisite 2.5 GPA necessary Mm. to continue to perform. So that became this whole crisis in our home and, you know, finally thing and he lost his PlayStation and it was a whole thing. Anyway, um, So listeners to the show know that I've talked about uh, Ezra's various struggles with organization and achievement and academics and um, how far that is from his actual intelligence level. Because the other thing he did the other day was he um, he was – he's been carrying around – it was really hard to get him to read books and we'll talk about this in the later segment. But he's been carrying around all year this collection of writings by existentialists that I've noticed in his backpack. And I was like – He's not really reading that, is he? Like, there's no way. I couldn't get this kid to read anything three years ago. But then the other day, he was like, Dad, um, I I want you to hear this essay. I think it's my favorite essay, and I've read it a bunch of times. I want to read it to you. And then he read me Camus' essay on the myth of Sisyphus. (laughs) And he, like, really read it to me and, like, really, like, paused after every paragraph and, like, what do you think about that, Dad? Like, here's what I think he's saying. But, you know, but this—and it was, like, an amazing experience. So I was like— wow, this kid really is like his brain works. He's just struggling. So in any event, I've talked about all of his struggles, all his inability to remember where his keys are. He left the house without his shoes the other day. It's the third time that's happened and all this stuff. And listeners to the show have emailed and written on Facebook and he's talked about it and I've talked about it um, have you gotten him tested for ADD or ADHD and we've talked a little bit in the past about why we haven't done that and how we thought about it but we weren't sure or whatever anyway he a couple of weeks ago said that he wanted to do that process and we agreed that it was time and so actually after we began finally after a lot of going back and forth we finally began that process after today's show his mother and I are going for an intake appointment at Kaiser to begin the process of getting him some help that he seems to need and um, I feel like this is this is a, a triumph for us I it's hard not to look back and say God why didn't we jump on this earlier but there were between the two of us I mean I think I was maybe more keen to do it than Joe was but for whatever reason between the two of us we really tried to not go this route for some years And um, I feel I feel a lot of ways about that, um, but I'm glad that we're at least beginning that process today. So that is a triumph for us and a triumph for Ezra. And that's where we are.
1: It's a big triumph, actually. And, you know, as you'll find, and I'm sure you and I will talk about this both online and offline, given that I've been through this um, and continue to go through it. It is a it is not just a it's a process, you know, and knowing is is helpful Starting is helpful. All being on the same page is helpful. But, you know, the fact that he initiated it is wonderful. I mean, that's just that's why it's a triumph to me is that he he wanted to look into it and learn more about his own brain. That's wonderful.
3: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that obviously all the stories you tell about Ezra, he's such an incredibly smart and engaged kid who has so much intellectual abilities and it's like he and so many interests so it's just a question of that he sees that there's something about um, how things are going that is holding him back from you know doing as well as he wants to be able to do in school so he can do his plays and stuff so I think that's great and I agree like the fact that he initiated it actually shows so much sort of self-awareness and maturity that I think a kid a lot of kids at that age would not have so that's that's really awesome
2: yeah, one of the things I have learned parenting is that, and just not just from parenting, but from all the years I did like nonprofit work and youth development and stuff like that, and working with kids through addiction issues and all kinds of personal stuff, is that people have to be motivated personally in order to take steps that may be uncomfortable for them. It's very difficult to motivate someone entirely with extrinsic motivation, and um, I, I feel like. One of the things that I've learned to do better than I used to do is that um, we've had to let him see his own consequences and respond to them more than I would have originally thought. Like a lot of – and he points this out to me all the time. Like a lot of parenting is like creating consequences because you don't want your kids to experience the naturally occurring ones. And there, he finds that hypocritical, drives him crazy. It's a great argument whenever there's any kind of punishment. <laughs> like you're just making up consequences, Dad. You know, which is like a valid point, but funny. But um, <laughs> but that is what we do as parents. We're like, well, we're going to give you a timeout because this behavior has real consequences. We don't want you to experience those. We'd rather like kind of like manufacture some. But there's a there's a balance there that we have to strike, and knowing how to do that sometimes, and other times let people find their own consequences so that the motivation is intrinsic is a big part of how to make parenting work and how to have sort of foster change that that sticks and i think that i'm seeing that with him he's he is holding this as something he wants to address and we get to facilitate it for him and that feels right to me
1: yeah that's really great it's really really great and if it's any consolation um Teddy's grades also went to the toilet after Bye Bye Birdie, so <laughs> you're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> you're not alone, Catherine. Yeah. What about you? Do you have a triumph or a fail this week? I have a
3: triumph um, that's on a on a different, totally different note, and it's uh, but it had some fails along the way. So um, my son is two and a half, and we decided that the time had come to say goodbye to his binkies. Um, he was too, he already didn't have them at school. He didn't really need them for naps, but they were a big comfort thing. And he wanted, he want, always would ask for them at the house. And if we go out to an unfamiliar place, he would always want them. And we, we thought that they kind of like made him tired and, um, because he kind of associated with relaxing and, and kept him less verbal or whatever. So we were just like, okay, you're, you're a big boy. It's time to say goodbye to your binkies. So, um. It's uh, it's a weekend. And, you know, we feel like it's a good time. There's no illness. Nobody's traveling like where this seems like really the right time to pull off the bandaid. So we suggest to him we say, OK, so Asher, would you uh, be interested in ge- in getting a train table that you pay for with your binkies? <laughs> Brilliant so he's like yeah like and so we're saying but that means there's going to be no more binkies in the house like we really explained it to him and he seems like super excited so then the next day he wakes up the first thing he says is I want to go get my train tables and pay with my binkies like he is completely on board with this mission so we uh, borrow a friend's car and go to this Toys R Us in this remote remote part of Brooklyn he's actually never been to like a big toy store so that in itself was like the experience of a lifetime (laughs) so so we get to um the big Toys R Us, we go and find this monstro like this mon- monstrously large train table um that we that he's gonna pay for with his minkies. So he is like super excited, we get the gigantic box, he's like holding on to it in the shopping cart, he's just so excited, so we take him to the the checkout and we tell the cashier we're paying for this with his binkies. And like, she's like, Oh, that's so cute. Oh, that's so funny. Like calls over the manager to like, as we hand over this plastic bag full of binkies <laughs> and we like take a picture of him handing the plastic bag of binkies over to the cashier. And, um, and then like, we're like, okay, thanks so much. Like you can just throw them away. And she's like, Oh, don't you want them in case he like wants them back in the n- in the middle of the night? And We're like, no, no, no! <laughs> don't give them back to us. The yeah. whole point is that there's no more binkies. And uh, she's like, "Are you sure?" Oh, we're like, "Listen, lady, we got this. This is really clearly the right decision." So uh, we we get we get in the car, and Asher's already pretty upset about leaving Toys R Us. I can't imagine why. Um, and so <laughs> we get in the car. He's already kind of upset, and we. He's, like, wanting to play with this other car toy, and we have to, like, tear him away from it. He's getting really upset. We get into the car, and the first thing he asks for to calm himself down is his binky. And we say, no, Asher, we paid for the binkies. There are no more binkies and you can see the existential realization Whoa. of what he has done <laughs> and like the a big fail is that we got him this huge toy but we didn't get him like some kind of little toy he could like hold in the car cuz we're like look it's your train table in this gigantic box that you can't play with while yeah. you're strapped into I can't your do car seat with
2: that. and like <laughs> right.
3: this the wailing like the car was like shaking as we went down the highway <laughs> And like I was just like head in my hands, like we don't we don't drive with him that much, so it was just so stressful. We were in this car screaming, screaming, screaming for his binkies. Um but we made and I was really glad that we didn't Take the cashier lady's advice, because I feel like if we'd had a secret binky in the car, it would have been really easy to undermine ourselves by giving it to him because he was in so much agony over his realization of what he'd done. So we set up the train table. He liked it, but he was still asking for his binkies a lot. And like I thought after a day or two he'd basically forget, but this kid has a memory like an elephant, like It's been three and a half weeks, and he still asks about his binkies. Like, he knows he's not going to get them, and, like, I'm glad they're out of our lives, and we did not cave, and there were no more binkies. But, like, he still brings it up. And the other day, he hadn't been playing with his train table that much, and he looked, and I was like, Asher, do you want to go play with your train table? And he's like, he looks me in the eye, and he says... No, I want my binkies back. Like, like <laughs> boycotting the trade table. Ooh. Like, I, like, you know, like you thought this was such a great gift, but like I'm still holding out hope that I could take it back <laughs> in exchange for my binkies. But anyway, I'm going to call it a triumph because he no longer uses a binky, but um, uh, it was definitely there was a few ways we could have probably managed it a little better.
1: Catherine, I'm so stunned by this story because one of my deparenting parenting secrets is that I did exactly the same thing except with a Power Wheels car uh, when Teddy was binky and I actually pre-arranged it with Toys R Us. so The car was already assembled and everything and we like pre-arranged it. I pre-paid for it. So like he literally paid with his binkies and we walked out. Wow. And when he did that, I was like, want me to return the car? And he was like, no, when he started asking for his binkies. so And I've had so much parenting shame over this like decision that I, I made to, <laughs> to i feel great expenses. about it i'm bragging
3: about it on the ra- radio like i'm i, oh, yeah. I feel
1: nothing is- <laughs> i feel no shame at all good i feel better. i, know, I always thought it was weird stuff. like, like this is- I, I know but, you know, like Gabe always says, like, if you were a good parent, you would spend time discussing with your kid the <laughs> – But you know what? Gabe is not here today. Let us, yeah, let us remember. Yeah. yeah.
2: Who's the good parent now, buddy? Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Actually, I think – I mean, I think this is absolutely brilliant. We did not think of this and I wish we had. Um, you know, I don't remember the exact transition out of Minkies for both of us. I'm sure Joe has the details. But, like, I, you know, it was like we – it was hard, you know, it was hard and like, and Georgia was more, well, Ezra was more binky related than Georgia was. She was kind of, she seemed to take it or leave it the whole time, but Ezra had gotten attached and it was a whole thing. And, you know, I, but I, I think what's so great about this is that, one of the things little kids, all people, but especially little kids struggle with is transitions. Transitions are very difficult. Like, and, you, and managing transitions with kids is, like, a really big part of how to navigate through a day. And, like, there's really three parts of a transition. A transition is, like, there's this change event where something that used to be one way suddenly out of your control becomes another way. And – There's the part where you're sort of like in denial about it. And then there's the part where you sort of have accepted it's happened but don't know what's next. And then there's the part where you sort of finally turn your attention to what's next. And one of the things I've learned working with both my own kids and with kids at work is that successfully navigating these transitions and letting kids work through each of those stages is a key part to having them fully accept the change event. And without knowing it, you guys really set that up. Like he's really in that state where – you know, he's like, there was initial denial. Like, my pinkies aren't gone. Are they? Well, they are. And, like, if you were to give them back, then you'd be stuck in that sort of between zone for a long time. And now he's at that place where he's accepted the old reality but hasn't fully accepted the new one. But he's going to get there. I think this is brilliant stuff, actually.
3: Thank you. Um, I think uh, one thing that actually really helped is – the pictures we took and the one of him paying with his binkies, like he asked to see that multiple times. Like he needed yeah. to relive like what happened so he could understand like, <laughs> that's where the binkies were. Um So I was yeah. kind of glad that I had snapped that uh picture because that was helpful in, in some of the early days of just as the despair had continued. But, um but I think that honestly, the the whole thing of giving it up was also psychologically important for me and my husband. Like, if we had just said, like, no more binkies, like, oh, and not made this huge deal about it, I feel like it would have been really easy to backslide, be like, OK, just this once. And then all of a sudden, like, he, you know, he's convincing us to give it more and more. So the fact that we actually didn't have any in the house and we had made this huge effort and spent this money to get this train table, I think, helped us be firm about our commitment to the process, which was also really important.
1: Yeah. Right. There's a totem in the room to, to help you, to remind yeah. you, right? Uh, well, my triumph is um, less complicated, but uh was really fun. I was in Washington, D.C. this past weekend with my kids, dropping off Henry for his four months in D.C. adventure and kind of realized throughout the weekend that we had constructed this entire fun weekend really around Henry and poor Teddy. You know, it was his birthday last week. And as I discussed on the show last week, like there's been so much activity around Henry. So I planned a little escape field trip for Teddy and I. My husband, Kevin, is notoriously late sleeper. And Teddy on uh, Henry and And Henry on Sunday morning um, was wanting to sort of get his stuff together and get ready to move in to the uh, page residence where he'll be living. So I planned this spontaneous um, sneak away field trip from our hotel in Capitol Hill to the zoo, the National Zoo over on the other side of DC. And we had a rainy Sunday morning in the zoo. We got there at about nine o'clock. We only had about an hour and 45 minutes to spend there. And as Teddy and I described it, of course, he and I both um, have ADHD and we described it as like the ADHD zoo experience where we were just like running from exhibit to exhibit. And if we didn't see an animal in the exhibit immediately, we were like, well, the animal must be sleeping and we would just move on. But a couple of things about the National Zoo on a rainy Sunday morning in the early hours of day when it's raining, the animals are super active and actually are outside like tilting their heads up and enjoying the rain and all the staff are actually doing because it's not crowded are actually doing work with the animals cleaning out the cages and they're not really cages they're enclosures and you know bringing in uh, eucalyptus and bamboo into the different sort of areas where they belong and really talkative and gave us lots of tips. And I would just run by and say, hey, uh, if I really want to see an elephant, what's the best place I should go to? And he'd be like, don't go to the pens, go to outside because it's the time of morning. And they were just really helpful. And it was really, really wonderful. And Teddy and I had this very, very fun, very memorable adventure in the zoo. And he even wanted to buy a big stuffed panda in the zoo gift shop. And he is 15 years old. So as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) when you go to the zoo with a 15 year old, A, they laugh the whole time. B, they want to buy a panda in the zoo gift shop it's a triumph and we managed to carve out this little time uh, just for ourselves and also get a little preview of what it's going to be like for the next few months without his brother and it was a pretty good preview so that was a triumph for me this week
2: yeah and you also managed to remember his birthday which is yes
1: (laughs) (laughs) miracles (laughs) never cease Yeah. All right, so moving on, we will get to listener questions in just a minute. But first, let's do a bit of business. As always, if you have a question you'd like us to answer on the podcast, leave us a message at 424-255-7833, or you can email us at com. Have you checked out Slate's Lexicon Valley? It's a podcast about language from pet peeves, syntax, and etymology to neurolinguistics and the death of languages. Recent episodes have tackled efforts to revive endangered Native American languages, the history and evolution of no and not, and of interest to our listeners, how languages around the world developed similar words for mom and dad. It's hosted by linguist, author, and Columbia University professor John McWorder. Check it out every other Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. And in Slate Plus today, Catherine Goldstein will regale us with tales of her adventures in Florida with a multitude of diverse family members. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is a great way to help support this show. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing Mom and Dad are Fighting and your other favorite Slate shows. And, of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, go to slate.com slash momanddadplus and join Slate Plus today. All right, moving on. All right, let's listen to our first question. Uh, this one was submitted digitally, but um, Rachel Withers will be reading it for us. Hi, Mom and Dad are Fighting. I'm a mom of three. My boys are 12 and 9. My
0: girl is 7. My husband announced last week he will be leaving me for a co-worker slash friend who he has decided he is in love with. I am heartbroken. I am 40 years old, and we've been married 19 years. While I am the first to admit that we have had our issues, all relatively minor, I thought our relationship has been better the last couple years, as we made time for couple things and hobbies together. I really was blindsided by this. For context, I'm a stay-at-home mum, and I haven't had a job for 14 years. My oldest has ADHD and Asperger's, so I have a lot of extra meetings at school and extra demands on my time and emotions due to his special needs, which I need to keep on top of. And while my husband has come to understand these needs, he has never managed any part of them. My first and biggest worry is trying to provide for all three of my children. I have never had a real professional job since we married in college, and while I respect service people, I do not want to wind up working for pittens at McDonald's or the like. But also, I want an amicable divorce. How do I protect myself and my children without spending money neither of us have on an expensive divorce? Will a mediator really protect my interests? How did you navigate this, Carvel and Rebecca? And I have never made more than $5,000 in a year. It is legitimately terrifying and makes me wonder if I was stupid to be the dutiful wife and stay-at-home mum these last 14 years. Who knew listening to your podcast was preparing me for the life of a single mom? I love Rebecca and Carvel and their advice on co-parenting. The first thing I told my husband was 50-50 custody is the only acceptable solution, based on Rebecca's advice. And to my knowledge, my soon-to-be ex is a great, loving, non-abusive father. What else do I ask for? Any advice is welcome. Thanks. Confused and heartbroken mom in New Hampshire.
2: Well, I, first of all... Um i This is so painful, and I want to address the the one thing first, which is that you were not in any way shape or form stupid to be the dutiful mom and stay at home for fourteen years. You had no way of knowing that this was coming, um, and so there's there 's no call and it 's not even helpful to beat up on yourself for this. I mean, I understand that's a natural impulse when something this painful and upsetting happens. We want to go back and second-guess all of our decisions to see how could this possibly have come up? Like, what did we miss? And the reality is that sometimes you didn't miss anything. It's just dealing with people is difficult, and people do nonsensical painful things even people that we love and trusted do um difficult and painful things to us sometimes and it happens to everyone and and so you don't have to feel like you somehow messed this up what you're describing would be unsettling to say the very least to anyone and so i just want to give you that to begin with um I Rebecca can probably talk you know the second issue that you brought up about how do you actually financially and you know from a resource perspective time being another resource how do you care for three children who have needs and needs that require a lot of time to be handled well and how do you do that when you're splitting up is a big one and Rebecca can talk more about what the divorce laws are like and what custody and alimony child support looks like um, in that state. But I know that the way the laws are supposed to be written is that um, you it's for just this purpose that you are to have protection for if you put aside your career to contribute to a family unit and that family unit ends at the behest of the other partner. That that partner then is responsible for making sure that um, that there is income for you to continue to live. And that is what it seems to me should happen. We, you know, both in in our marriage, this was we had a similar situation, not exactly the same at all, but something similar where. I didn't do as much work in my career when the kids were younger because I was a stay-at-home dad for seven years. And that fortunately for us, we didn't necessarily have to go through mediation or laws because we both kind of recognized that that was a part of what had happened. And so we were able to, with some difficult discussions, arrive at a way to handle that. And so for me, I had two things going on. One was sort of how do I figure out what to do financially for the first few years of this new life? And the second one is how do I actually build a career for myself? And neither one of those things are easy, but both of those things had to happen, and they did happen. And it felt overwhelming and confusing. I was I was 35 years old. I, I you know, and but we I found a way and I think it's possible to do this, but it does take time, and that time is yours to have you're not expected to suddenly like just sort of out of nowhere land some $70,000 per year job the day after your marriage ends. That's not the way it works. And, and child support and alimony is there specifically for that reason. So I would take advantage of that to whatever extent you can. the third thing is about the co-parenting and there's so much to how to split up, um, the needs for kids among two households. It's very different than doing it with with one household. Um, But it's something that you'll have to learn over time. And Rebecca and I talk about this a lot. We'll continue to talk about it because people will continue to write in with these very specific and granular co-parenting questions. Who should handle this? How do I deal with it when my ex won't do these appointments or what have you? And that stuff is going to come up. It's going to continue to come up. And it takes a while for it to get sorted out, for you guys to figure out what your rhythm is as a two-household family as opposed to one. And so I would also give yourself patience with that to recognize that it's it's going to take a while for that to be sorted out. It sounds to me like your husband is – ex-husband, soon-to-be ex-husband – is um, <laughs> going through a lot. And I don't mean that like poor guy. I mean that he's – this is a decision, this is a sudden, feelingly sudden and rash decision that, oh, how can I say this diplomatically? That I think there will be, (laughs) he'll have many different ways of thinking about as time goes on and his behavior sounds to me erratic to a certain extent and so that's going to make the first few years difficult because who knows what will happen with this new relationship that he's decided he's in love with this person and this is, you're in this for the long haul but I do want to, in, Encourage you. I would guess I want to leave on a positive note here. I want to encourage you that you can do this. Of course, it feels overwhelming. Of course, it feels terrifying. The beginning of, a, of an experience like this is overwhelming and terrifying. But you can do this. And I also would encourage you to take advantage of any resources you have just to vent and talk. It took, it takes a year of just yelling and crying to properly transition into a situation like this, like with your friends, with a therapist, with whomever, whatever your whoever it is that you can talk to. Don't be ashamed or afraid to like, let that all out because that will help you work through the difficult feelings and have those feelings sort of not jam you up and get intertwined with the very real logistical concerns you face.
1: Yeah, that's all right. Especially, I mean, the positive stuff, I know it feels very, very hopeless. And the the situation you're describing, except for our ages, uh, you're in a very similar situation to I was, not exactly with the circumstances of the divorce, but age, uh, but in terms of um, child care and income, I had no income when I got divorced from my husband. Um, and he my first husband, I should say, and you know, he was a successful guy with a stable career and I had been a stay-at-home mom. I had sort of pieced together little bits and pieces of work and just like you, only made a few thousand dollars a year for several years and I didn't know if I'd ever be employable, but it sounds like you have something that I didn't have in the moment, which is that I was very, very, very anxious to get out of my marriage and to my ex-husband and I had to live together for about six months when we had already decided to get divorced because we had to sell the house and we didn't have the resources for like one of us to move out into a whole separate place and um, it was really stressful and I couldn't wait to get out and as a result of not being able to wait to get out I think I made a couple of mistakes in terms of the stuff that Carvel was talking about the structural stuff that the stuff the law affords you that would have made things a little bit easier for me so Practically speaking, I am familiar a little bit with the divorce law in New Hampshire. It is a not a state where there is a lot of like community property law, and you have to go to like this long, extensive process. Divorces here can be very quick and easy, and the courts really do encourage mediation. However, um, the one piece of advice I would give anyone when they're getting divorced, even if it is the most amicable, agreeable, happy divorce in the world is for you to get your own representation. And if that means you have to call legal aid or the New Hampshire Bar Association to find some resources or if you have to borrow money to pay a retainer for someone who can work on a per diem basis instead of having to you know hire somebody like for the long haul I really encourage you, even if you hope to settle this super quickly and amicably, to get your own representation because it is really, really easy in these high stakes, very emotional conversations when you're talking about your kids, when you're talking about how you're going to support yourself to perhaps make a decision, you know, for the sake of it being over that you might regret later. And that is where patience really comes into play. Being in a rush to have it be over is never a good way to go. Um, So that is... Like My fundamental piece of of advice and there's plenty of resources online um, that you can look at there. Um, But the other positive thing I want to say is that I promise you and it may not seem like it now. I dare you to find a divorced person who, uh, you know, your future self uh, wouldn't say that you will you, you won't be better off. Divorced people always say, in retrospect, it was good for them to no longer be in a relationship that wasn't fulfilling, wasn't fulfilling as a family, wasn't healthy, uh, healthy environment in which to raise kids. So that's that's sort of my future self <laughs> uh, look at you. Is, is I promise you, at some point in the future, you will be able to say that you're better off as a result of this big change. Um, so that being said. I think that you just need to really think about how patient can you be, muster all the resources that you can. If you have family and friends that can help you out, um, ask for that help. Um, This is something that a lot of people have been through and a lot of people would be willing to step up to help you with. And think about the opportunity that you now have. I'm guessing, and it sounds a little bit like to me, like you've been very, very invested in this family structure and in caring for your kids and this marriage and You now have an opportunity to explore what's next. And this is a time that you can make that exploration. Um, And decisions like the 50-50 custody, maybe that is right. Maybe it's not right. Don't feel like you have to. If you can, come to some sort of amicable agreement around the kids and what that should look like. Ask your ex- soon-to-be ex-husband to keep that separate from the divorce negotiation, if possible. You know, they are two separate documents: the parenting plan and the support plan. And if you both are fully committed and agree to the parenting part, that's great. Try not to let one hold the other hostage. That's that's a trap people often often fall into. But yeah, this is um, it's a lot. Uh, I know that, and I know that it's a lot. I know this like granular pieces of advice it may not sound like they're answering the big question, but. In some ways, I, I hope that you will just heed this 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 thing is to take your time, find somebody to advocate for you, and just know you will for sure be better off in the long run. I promise. I absolutely promise. Millions and millions of people and millions and millions of women, millions and millions of moms have been through exactly what you are going through right now and have come through it on the other side and have had rich, fulfilling, love-filled you know, happy lives um, in, in the wake of a really, really unsettling personal event like this. So my heart's with you. I'm thinking about you. That sounds really corny, but it's 100% true. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I know it's a lot. It's it's a whole lot. But you're not alone. Catherine, do you have anything yeah. that you'd like to, to add to this? Yeah, I... I, I... Um, I think the advice
3: given has been really amazing and obviously comes from some really uh, important personal experiences that Rebecca and Carvel have had. But the one thing I wanted to just add was a little bit about the workplace and the the career piece, which you bring up, Um, because I do some coaching with journalists on career stuff and help people with resumes. And I and I think that some of this stuff is really challenging for people, even that who aren't sort of dealing with a big trauma. And so I think. First of all, you're only one week out. So I don't think you need to have like this full career plan completely put in place immediately or and that might not even be something that you want to think about immediately. Um, But one thing that I would just, you know, stress for you is that you haven't had, you sort of say you haven't had a lot of professional paid experience um, because you've been a stay-at-home mom and and so you don't have a clear career to return to. But a lot of times women um, really sort of Undersell to themselves and others their you know competencies and experiences that they that they've had and you you know you mentioned that you've navigated a lot with your um, son's special needs like I think there's a there's a time that when you're ready to sit down and sort of list everything you've done like volunteer work um, charity work school committees um, being involved in your community that shows different kind of competencies that may help you feel better about your ideas of employability. I don't think you have to feel like because you haven't had much job experience, the only place you could ever get a job is is working at McDonald's. I think um, when you uh, have time to breathe, get with a trusted friend or uh, advisor of some kind and sort of start to think about What it is you really want to do, because this is a moment where you're going to get to sort of decide the next chapter of your life and what that looks like. And it may be that you could become an advocate for special needs kids in schools or you could work for an organization that that takes some of the stuff you've been doing for free your with your family and in your community and um, help you really shine that in a new professional light. So I don't want you to feel discouraged that you would have nothing to offer the professional world because it sounds like you have offered a lot to the people in your life your life, and you have a lot of competencies. So I don't want you to
1: feel discouraged about that. Yeah,
2: that's, that's really great advice.
1: It, it, it's fantastic yeah. advice. And, you know, I didn't have yeah. a college degree when I got divorced. So what I did was I went back to school, which meant living on student loan money for three years. <laughs> like, I was 20 years old again, but that student loan money fed my kids. I'm not saying this is the right solution for everybody. It was the right solution for me. <laughs> um, and of course, that experience of going back to school sort of led to opportunities. I ended up working a retail job because I needed something that I could fit in between going to class and so forth, and that retail job led to something else. And then my writing stuff took off, and And then I ended up working in public radio. It was just like one thing kind of led to another. And it all really happened within like a three-year period. It was not, you know, it didn't take 10 years to sort of find it. But it was amazing to me just sort of even being free of the confines of that role. I am a stay-at-home mom. This is what I'm going to do forever kind of role. How I had to find something to do. You have to. And it's amazing what you can discover about yourself when you have to find something to do. It really is. And the court of career opportunities that can come your way and the personal opportunities, too. You
2: know, even when I wasn't working, I was interacting with a lot of agencies and places and people. And when I was looking for a job, people that I had regular interactions with, places that I had to take my kids, places, things that, you know, people that I called on a regular basis, those are all jobs. People are all there working. And I found myself starting to ask people who I'd built relationships with about work. And that's how I got opportunities that I didn't previously have. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, I think this is great advice to think about the competencies that you've developed navigating special needs systems, which are always needed, which is very difficult, which are super professional. And to see at some point when you're ready, um, if that can be parlayed into something, even on a part-time basis. And, I would also – I mean, I, you know, Joe and I have this joke that like um, we got divorced so we could have a more equitable child care schedule. <laughs> it's a little bit of gallows humor. But I think that we found that to be true. I think both of us have found that after the initial pain and horror and all the sort of existential dread of losing this thing that you've been so deeply identified with, on the other side of that was a kind of personal – renaissance about who we were and what we could do in the world that I think we both ended up appreciating a lot. So I just want to like second that that opportunity is there too when you're ready to take it.
1: All right. So moving on, uh, we do have another question. This one is from Tiffany, also being read by Rachel Withers. I have a four-year-old son. Throughout his life, I have tried to foster a love of books.
0: I am currently failing. He rarely wants to read with me, and at bedtime, he only wants me to read books as a means of stalling the actual sleep part of bedtime. Recently, I asked if he didn't like reading books together, and he said, no, because it's boring. I've bought so many different kinds of books. I try funny voices, which he hates. His father does not like to read at all, and is obviously not at all concerned about this. Should I just stop trying? I fear I will push him too far in the opposite direction— I think I want this too much. I love books. I want to be able to connect with him about this as he gets older. Plus, enjoying reading seems to really open up so much about the world to a child. Did all of your children like to read
1: when they were little? Nope. (laughs) Next question. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) They did not. My kids both hated reading. And they hated (laughs) me reading to them. And they thought it was boring. Yeah. And guess what? I kind of thought it was boring too. So I think this mom is actually kind of lucky in a weird way. Um, my kids both hated reading, and the solution came later. Four years old, your kid can't even read yet. So I wouldn't. I really wouldn't overthink this, and I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, the gateway for one of my sons into reading was Calvin and Hobbes. He was required to do some reading in, like, second grade, you know, a certain number of hours per reading a week. The only thing he would read was Calvin and Hobbes, which his teacher agreed, was actually reading. There's a lot of dialogue, and that was the first thing he ever read. And before that, I couldn't even get him to pick up, like— a comic book <laughs> and now they're fine they're totally fine what do you think Carvel?
2: i think the same thing i mean i i listen when ezra georgia always was like would read on her own you know and i had this thing where it was like 30 minutes of reading a night was the thing we did and, and it was like that was met with some success i don't say it was 100 percent successful but it was fine <laughs> at least it got him quiet towards before bedtime but um Georgia would always do it. Ezra wouldn't. So one year between, I think, maybe fifth and sixth grade, I said to Ezra, look, this summer, I'm going to pay you $100 if you read 10 books. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you $100. Bro, $10 a book. Like, Come on, bro. And he was like, wow, that's a lot of money. I'm like, yeah, think of the stuff you could buy with that. He's like, yeah, I'm really really into that. And then about three days later, he was like, I'm not going to do it. He just wouldn't do it. Like he just, he just was not – he did not care. Talk about leaving and money
3: on the table.
2: <laughs> talk about leaving money on the table. This is a kid now – he was whatever, 9, 10, 11, whatever age that was. This is a kid who at 14 just sat me down to make to read to me Camus The Myth of Sisyphus. I don't know where that came from. That's where he's at right now. So like the the thing about reading is that – it, it happens in so many different ways for so many different kids. You, you really can't manage or control that, especially at four years old. They have to find something they're interested in. And for some kids, that takes longer. And some kids will do the presentation where they act exactly like the bookish child that certain parents would love to have and makes them feel like they're winning at parenting. But other kids just won't do that. And if your kid won't do that, he won't do it. The other thing is that I took comfort in is that all that reading Ezra wasn't doing at home, and Georgia ultimately sort of faded from reading at home they were still doing in school. They were still reading in school. They were reading all day long in school. It just wasn't under my auspices. It wasn't under my vision. But they were still doing it. So they were getting reading. They they, they got it. It's like it all seems to be working out just fine. I would not overthink this if I was you.
3: I think that all sounds like great advice. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> I... I um... Uh, <laughs> all right well just ask me the questions about resumes I don't know <laughs>
1: <laughs> time for recommendations Catherine do you have a recommendation for us this week okay ironically um, the recommendation I have is
3: a book just despite the fact <laughs> I have nothing <laughs> to, to say <laughs> which, wow, which his parents kid will you not read person, why don't you? okay so <laughs> this book I I believe it is well known in, in some circles it was on a, I think some bestseller lists but um my uh mother-in-law gave my son this book called Dragons Love Tacos. Have you guys heard of this one?
1: No.
2: Mm-mm, it's no. so
3: cute. And it's 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 for younger readers. Um my son's two and a half and he loves it, so it's good for the you know, the preschool kindergarten set. And it's just about how much dragons like tacos and what they like to put on their tacos. And it just like it we've read it so many times. It's one of those books that he starts to know like what is coming next. And it's really adorable for a two and a half year old to say, like, you're like Dragons hate uh, that salsa because it's and he's like super spicy. Like he just is like really cute uh, book and it's great illustrations. And it's written in a very um, sometimes I think kids books can have a kind of um, stilted or like overly formal language in certain ways. Like here we are with our rhymes and and it's just written in a very conversational, uh, very relaxed tone. So dragons love tacos. Check it out. All right, Carvel,
1: do your recommendation for us this week.
2: Yeah, because I respect our listeners, I'm not going to make them read and feel bad about their kids (laughs) not reading. I'm going to recommend um, a movie that I used to make my kids watch all the time when they were little that I completely forgot about. And then this weekend I took my kids to the um, uh, Arboretum, I guess is what it's called, Uh, Botanical Mm -hmm. Garden. Went to the Botanical Garden in San Francisco. We're walking around. We're having a great time. We're in the bamboo forest. We start looking at birds. Then we get to talking about birds. And then I remembered that when my kids were little – We used to always play this movie called Winged Migration, which is a a movie from 2001 that doesn't have any dialogue in it. It's just this amazing science film. This this, uh, filmmaking team from, I believe, Quebec, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere in Canada, they spent four years creating all these devices to track birds' migration with a camera in the air. And they... They track Canadian geese traveling 2,000 miles one way, 2,000 miles another. All these different birds all over the planet um, on their annual migrations. And the end result is just this beautiful meditative film in which you just watch birds fly through the air. And there will be occasional facts thrown in about how many miles they fly or whatever. But the thing is just beautiful. And my kids, when they, I used to put it on when they were little just to kind of mellow them out, you know, after like a big event or whatever. And we were we were talking about it this weekend and they were like, God, we love that, Dad. We should watch that again. Like that movie was amazing. And so I'm recommending it. It's a 2001 film. I don't know if it's on Netflix or where you can find it, but it's called Winged Migration. And hmm. uh, it's just great for kids of all ages.
1: That sounds awesome. Sounds- it does. It Sounds like a Binky movie, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, I was. You know, it's a total we, Binky movie. We just introduced <laughs> the concept of movies into our house at all, but there's only one movie my son will watch, and that is Bambi. He won't <laughs> watch any oh, other movies, and I, but it's very gentle and it has like lovely classical yeah. music. So I'm thinking maybe he'd like the Swinged Migration book. I mean, movie. He sorry. would. Yeah.
2: Yeah, he would see, see there you go with the books again. <laughs> no, he would because it is very meditative, and and I think the first time we ever used it was after. We had a birthday party for one of the kids. I think it might have been Ezra and then it was like the mess and everyone's running around and everyone's jacked up on, on like sh- sugar. And after the kids left, we needed something to kind of like mellow everyone out. We had a few kids remaining who were sleeping over it and I just put that DVD on and everyone just sort of like – you know, it's like a big bong hit. Sorry to use that metaphor, but like Everyone just got real quiet and just were watching the birds. <laughs> it's a beautiful film so I recommend it.
1: Well, I've got a little bit of like a mobile version of that. So one of the things that uh, I learned after visiting the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. this weekend is that they have three webcams at the zoo. You can watch in real time mm. the pandas, the elephants, and the lions at the National Zoo in Washington. And I'm a huge fan of animal cams, huge fan. I sometimes will uh, put one on at work and just sort of have it on the corner of my desktop and watch, you know, bears <laughs> in an Alaskan stream catching salmon or, you know, puppies in a room mm. or whatever. But I have to say these National Zoo cams are particularly good. The elephant cam in particular is run by volunteers during the day that actually, like— move the camera so you can actually see what the elephants are doing whereas some of the other webcams you just have to wait for the animals to feel like coming into the frame but it is really fun to see you know real animals at a real place that you could potentially visit um and connect with them in that way and i don't know i just really like it that this is a taxpayer funded webcam and i think everyone should enjoy it so <laughs> those are the go to the national zoo website and the uh, panda elephant line cams are you can link to them right on the home page all right, well, that will do it for our show. Mom and Dad Are Fighting is produced by Benjamin Frisch. The homepage for the show is slate.com slash mom and dad. If you have a question you'd like to ask on the air, leave us a message at 424 255 7833. You can also join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. For Carvel Wallace and Katherine Goldstein, I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and we will see you next week.